This week I read a story about a person who was coming up upon a long line around 7.45 in the morning to a grocery store that was opening its doors at 8 a.m. to seniors only. And as this person uh, tells the story, a young man comes from the parking lot and appears to be uh, cutting into the front of the line. And of course, the people who are standing in line are like, what is he doing, this young whippersnapper? We're not going to have any of this. And so an old lady takes her cane out and starts beating him in the head, beating him back into the, beating him back into the parking lot. And, and, and then a few minutes later, he, he watches this same, same young man look like he's mustered enough courage to kind of come back. And he, lo and behold, comes back and tries to cut in the front of the line again. And, and of course, people weren't having that. And so uh, an, an old man comes and just punches the guy in the gut and, and, and keels over. And then the old man just kicks him and rolls him back into the parking lot. And waves his finger and says, it serves you right. Ser serves you right for trying to be, be disrespectful. And then... Uh, Sure as it was, just a few minutes later, this this same young man kind of timidly walks back to the front of the line and 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 appears to be trying to cut again. And and of course, at at this time, everyone was mad and 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 he had his hands in front of himself and he said he said to them, "Look, look, guys, if you want to get in there, you're gonna have to let me unlock the doors." <laughs> now, plot twists by definition are an unexpected development in a film or in a book or maybe even a made-up story uh, about a guy at a grocery store. But what it's designed to do, a plot twist is designed to disrupt things in a story that the audience thinks they already know or they have already figured out. Now, everyone loves a great plot twist, whether it's a shock you felt when you first heard the words, Luke. I am your father. <laughs> Star Wars, remember that? Or, or maybe it was the shock you felt when you first heard that Larry the Cable Guy's, um, you know, his trademark Southern accent is actually fake, right? And that, and that he wasn't even from the South. He was actually born in the Midwest. He was born and raised in the Midwest. <laughs> like the shock of that. Now, I get it. Um, some of you are just hearing that for the first time. My bad. But listen, whether it's the shock of Star Wars or or hearing Larry the Cable Guy's fake accent, had a fake accent. Plot twists, they can have the potential to be very impactful, which is why Jesus often used the power of plot twists to get the message of the kingdom across to those he was preaching to. In fact, in the greatest sermon he ever gave, uh, something often referred to as the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus can be found saying things like this. He says, you have heard it said but I say to you, and even his list of beatitudes are, are sort of a planned disruption in, in, of the thoughts of, and, and the perceptions of those who were listening to him. And see, this is, this is because to a culture that believed happiness is found in the accumulation of wealth, health, and strength, hearing Jesus say, blessed are those who are poor, who mourn, and who are meek, is kind of a plot twist. And while this may have been good news to some, for others, this turn of the tables gave reason to hate Jesus, even, even to want to see him dead. That's because while we may enjoy plot twists in our movies or stories or find them interesting, in the, at least in the lives of others, no one really wants to put a plot twist in our own life. We like to believe that what we know is right, what we know is true. 
We are biased to believe that the way we perceive things is the way things are. No one, at least most everyone, doesn't ever really want to be told they're wrong. In fact, there are some of us who double down, right? Some of us who double down when confronted with the reality that our way of thinking, our way of perceiving what is right and what is wrong is actually untrue. We double down, even in the face of confrontation, even in the face of evidence, we go, well, I still don't think, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> Several weeks ago, we began this Lent-inspired series with the hope that it would provide us all with the opportunity to practice really allowing God access to all the ways that we fall short of his standards. Not that God needs us, not that God himself needs us to solemnly look at our sin and our need for repentance, because by the way, he already knows where we struggle and where we fail. The point of this series is really about challenging us. This is for us to open our hearts and our minds to our sin and pointing our feet down the path of repentance because it is what we need. This season of repentance invites God to examine our hearts and slows us down enough to hear him reveal those dark places that need his light. So over the past four weeks, we've been looking at the scriptures as a source from where we find the inspiration for the kind of prayers, the kind of conversations we would offer up to the Lord during this season of repentance. And, and, and if you've been with us, you, you, you've learned that we've, we've, we've learned to say the following. In week one, we, we looked at Isaiah prayer, Isaiah's prayer in Isaiah chapter six, and we learned what it means to pray, Lord, humble me. I am nothing compared to you. And then in week two, we looked at David's prayer right after he had committed adultery and, and planned the death of the husband with, with the woman he had committed adultery with. And, and we learned to pray this, Lord, forgive me. I am a sinner and I am in desperate need of you. And then in week three, we looked at something James talks about uh, regarding how we're to view the source of why we are tempted. And we learned to pray this, Lord, it's my fault. It's my fault. It's not yours. There's something inside of me not outside of me, that leads me to desire to live life my way for my will instead of living life for your way and your will. And then last week, we looked at the life of King Josiah as found in the book of Second Chronicles, and we learned to pray this. Lord, I give up. And, and not just any like, I give up, surrender, give up. It's, it's a, I give up the distractions and the idols that keep you from being all-sufficient and sovereign over all my life. I give up. And so while the first four weeks have been this introspective look at how sin manifests itself and how it affects our relationship between us and God, this week I want to help us start a journey of looking at how our sin affects our relationships with others. To do this, we will have to learn to pray as David did in Psalm 139 when he penned these words. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my concerns. See if there's any offensive way in me. Lead me in the everlasting way. In Psalm 139, when David asked the Lord to search and test him, 
He's not asking for a TSA pat down. He's asking the Lord to look into his heart and look into his mind. This is why in an earlier Psalm, David writes this. In Psalms 26, 2, he says, test me, Lord, and try me. Examine my heart and mind. Speaking of TSA pat downs, I don't know about you, but Going through airport security is, is, is honestly just one of the most stressful things in the world. To me, those of you who travel with me know this to be 100% true. And it's partly because of the feeling that I, I'm, I'm going like, to not get through security and, and uh, I'm going to go miss my flight. But, but to be completely transparent, completely, completely transparent, there's a part of me that dreads the idea of having to go through those full body scanners. You know what I'm talking about? The full body scanners, you know, where they make like thousands of people I date, uh, thousands of people a day, like do the, the world's saddest jumping jack, right? And, and listen, I don't dread it because they, the, I think they're going to find something that I'm hiding. Uh, I dread it because I fear that they'll find something that I didn't even think was wrong. And I guess I carry a little baggage from past experience, uh, to be completely honest with you. Uh, back when I was about 16 years old, I went through a security checkpoint where they had metal detectors and they made me throw away a carabiner that I was using as a keychain. Now, if you don't know what a carabiner, it kind of looks like this, right? There's different kinds, different sizes, and this is like the full-fledged one. And, 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 and the kind of carabiner I had wasn't like one of these that you can get like a pack for a dollar, uh, five pack for a dollar. The one I had was like a real legit carabiner, like it was the full locking one, and it could support weight and all that kind of stuff. And, and listen, I was devastated when, when I walked through this metal detector and they, and they made me throw away my carabiner because first of all, this was, it was a gift given to me by a friend of mine who was like an avid rock climber. And, and, and I don't know what the person at the security, uh, I don't know what kind of day they were having, but when I asked her, I, I, I literally asked her, like, she said, you're gonna have to throw that away. And I said, like a 16 year old, like, why, <laughs> right? Why? And she said, uh, obviously that thing is too big to be a keychain. And, and I was frustrated with her and I looked at her and I said, it's not a keychain. It's an actual rock climbing carabiner. That's why it was so big. It's like, it's not, it's not a weapon or anything like that. And of course she wasn't having any of it. And, she, and the, line was, the line was starting to pile behind me. And she just, she just looked at me and she said, look, look, son, if you want to get in here, you're going to have to throw that away. So either throw it away, go through, or move out of the way so other people can get in line. Now, obviously I threw it away. And there's a part of me now when I go through security checkpoints, uh, really at airports, that really just dreads the thought that something I believed was perfectly fine to take with me will be the very thing that gets me in trouble. In fact, I can't go through any kind of like metal detector without getting a little bit of hesitation. Like, what am I carrying? Am I carrying something? Am I going to get in trouble? Ah, right? And, and, you know, and part of it is, is, is founded because some of you, you go to the airport, like if they find something on you, what do they do, right? Oh, now they got to touch you and they pat you down and then, and then they take you over to that machine where they have these little pieces of Kleenex and they wipe your bags and then, and then they like, and then it seems like they're taking their sweet old time. Then eventually what happens? What? You miss your flight, right? And I get it. Security exists to reveal the things that people are trying to hide but the anxiety I get comes from the possibility that I'll get in trouble for carrying something that I wasn't trying to hide because I didn't think anything was wrong with what I was carrying. Now, when we invite God to search our lives, part of that invitation is asking God to reveal to us 
where there are thoughts and actions in our lives that we think are justified and permissible when in actuality they're breaking God's standards and are literally offending the heart of God. Asking God to search our hearts therein, that part is basically inviting a plot twist of sorts. And I suppose before we talk about what it means to take a solemn look at the ways in which we sinfully treat others, we should talk about why we would even want God to search our hearts, to, to test us to when it comes to the way we treat others, to invite so, and so to say, this plot twist, uh, uh, revelation. First, and, and really the, the most important thing, the first reason why we should talk about this is because God cares about our heart towards others. This is why Jesus said this when he was asked by the religious leaders in, in Mark chapter 12, verse, uh, verses uh, 20 to 31. Um, religious leaders asked him, which command is the most important of all? And Jesus answered, this is the most important commandment. The most important commandment is this. Listen, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. The second is love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other command greater than these. God cares about our heart towards others. And according to Jesus, aside from our heart, to, our heart towards God, there is no other commandment that is as important. The problem is that when it comes to how we treat others, there are a lot of assumptions and a lot of beliefs we carry with us regarding what it means to act lovingly towards others. And those assumptions sometimes finds us failing to see where we're falling short of God's standards. One of the best examples of this <laughs> I know comes from a letter that James, the brother of Jesus, wrote to a bunch of Christians who were really struggling to put their faith into action. And here's what he wrote. He says this in James uh, 2, verses 8 to 9. Indeed, if you fulfill the royal law prescribed in the scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing well. If, however, you show favoritism, you commit sin and are convicted by the... Uh, if, uh, if you show favoritism, you, are, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. So, in the ancient world, your socioeconomic status carried with it assumptions about how pleased God was with you, which also meant that it carried assumptions that, that God was more pleased with some than with others. In, in other words, if you were rich... God likes you more and that you must be someone God thinks is just, is just worthy of blessing. If you're poor, then, then the assumption is that something about your life is just displeasing to God. And, and so you're not worthy of God's blessing as much as those who are rich, if, if anything at all. And let's be honest, some of these Jewish believers, they should have known better. Many of them knew the teachings of Jesus. They heard that Sermon on the Mount. But I can imagine that it's very, very hard to embrace the teachings of Jesus when it requires throwing out deeply ingrained ideas that the culture they were raised in and the experience they had had taught them. The problem had to do more than unfair assigned seatings in this scenario. Uh, in this scenario in James, uh, they were showing some favoritism to, to rich people by letting him better seats at the table than those who were poor. And, and listen, this, this was more than just a, a problem of 
unfair assigned seatings. In fact, my second grade teacher once assigned me a seat next to a girl who had a new kids on the block stick uh, button that was like about the size of the plate and just sat there on the side of the desk and it annoyed the living daylights out of me. I was, didn't want, I didn't like the new kids on the block. And, and, and as much as I was annoyed by my teacher, never once in my mind did I think she was sinning, right? Uh, this wasn't a, an issue of a assigned seat problem. This also wasn't an issue of preference, right? Every night my wife asked the youngest, uh, our youngest kid, hey, who do you want to tuck you into bed? Mom or dad, mom or dad? And, and every night, every night, every night, she says, dad, 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 dad. And listen, just because she preferred that I tuck her in night after night after night over her mother, it doesn't mean that she's guilty of sin. The problem that James was confronting was not an issue of preferential treatment. What he was confronting was the issue of favoritism, which in the biblical definition of favoritism is an outflow of judging others based on selfish personal criteria rather than seeing others as God sees them. This is why a, a few verses back in uh, same chapter, verse four, he says this, he goes, <clears throat> Haven't you made distinctions among, and this is, he's trying to point out what the issue was. And he says, haven't you made distinctions among yourself and become judges with evil thoughts? See, to pray, Lord, search me is to surrender your life to the process of uncovering where there is sin inside of you. You know, haven't you made distinctions among yourself and become judges with evil thoughts? That was the issue here. And so to pray, Lord, search me, is to surrender your life to this process of uncovering where there's sin inside of you, where there's ways of thinking about others that, one, you may already know break God's standards, but it's also about surrendering your life to the process of how you may unintentionally and maybe even unaware be breaking God's standards in the ways you think and perceive others. Because God cares about your heart towards others, it is important that we take time to allow God to search us and to test us. Just to remind you, if you're someone who has decided to make Jesus Christ the master and the savior of your life, then you have already made a commitment to increasingly learn what it means to have the heart of God to love people, to love them as he loved us. And there are things that we can only see, listen, when we are when, when we have them revealed by God, when we invite him in by saying, Lord, search me, test me, see if there's anything offensive in me, lead me in the everlasting way. Now, at this point, I, I know that there are many people who say, look, well, I don't play favorites, Phil. I just don't like people. <laughs> and listen, I get it. Part of it for, for some of you is a personality thing, a personal wiring thing. And, and I get it for some of you, others, part of it may be from like a legitimate past negative experience that has you carrying relational baggage into every current and potential relationship. But listen, your personality or your past experiences is not an excuse for living a life that's incongruent with God's standards. There is no excuse for living in sin, especially in sin that pertains to the way we think about and treat others. But 
What if it's not my personality or negative past experiences that is causing me to think of others in ways that look less than like Jesus commanded? You know, what if I just, just don't like people and it's not my, about my personality. There's a lot of people that I like and it's not about past experiences. I don't have any baggage. They're just some people, they just grate me the wrong way and I just don't like them. And it is something about them annoys me and I, I just really, 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 really don't like it. What's up with that? What's up with that? Well, in this book, How People Change, uh, pastor professor of theology, Dr. Timothy Lane, writes something that I think is, is, is pretty insightful. And he says this, in creation, we were made to live in community. But because of the fall, we tend to run from the very friendships we need. Quite often, our longing for them is tainted by, here's the key, sin. We pursue them only as long as they satisfy our own desires and needs. We have a love-hate relationship with relationships. I know I've said this before, but God cares about our heart towards others. If it isn't your personality or it isn't your relational baggage, all of us will treat others in ways that fall short of God's standard of love simply because we are sinful people in need of a savior. We all have been wired to break God's standards when it comes to loving others. So then, how does God search and test our hearts? Like, what does that look like? Well, first, it starts with a willing heart. It starts with a heart that's willing and a mouth that says this, Lord, search me. Search me. Test me. Show me. Reveal to me. Because here's the thing. God will not reveal what we conceal. He will not do it. He will not do it. God wants to search and know you, but God isn't concerned about playing hide and seek with your heart. God doesn't want to play games. He wants to perform surgery. Because there's sin inside of you and there's sin inside of me that is keeping me, that is keeping you, that is keeping us from becoming more and more like Jesus. And God wants to help us Get rid of that. But God will not reveal what we are all too willing to conceal. And if we want God to change our hearts, we have to be willing for him to search and test our hearts. The second way God searches and tests our hearts is ironically enough in the context of relationships. As one professor of theology put in his book entitled, it takes a church to raise a Christian. He says this, real godly change, real sanctification requires people to live together in covenantal relationships. And we're less inclined to that than any generation in human history, more than any before us. And an American today believes, I must write the script of my own life. The thought that such a script must be subordinate to the grand narrative of the Bible as a foreign one. Still more alarming is the idea that this surrender of our personal story to God's story must be mediated by a community of fallen people. We frankly don't want getting in our way and meddling with our own hopes and dreams. Now, basically, in other words, the work of God to make us more like Jesus involves our relationship with others. That's basically what he's saying, that the work of God to make us more and more like Jesus involves, it requires relationship. 
with others. It is God who is searching and testing your heart when he reveals your sin in the context of relationship with others. It is God who is working when in the context of Christian community, someone confronts your selfish thoughts. It is God who is working when in the context of Christian community, that someone confronts your prejudices and your bigotry. It is God who is working when in the context of Christian community, someone disagrees with your way of thinking and, and points out to you that, that your ideals are being shaped more by culture and personal life experiences than it is being shaped by the gospel. It is God who works because God cares about our heart, our heart towards others. God cares about our heart towards others. This is why the depth of our love towards others is a direct reflection of the depth of our relationship with God. I mean, how else do you understand what Jesus said when he taught by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you what? Love one another. There is a connection between our desire for the Lord to search our heart and the impact of the life-changing power of the gospel in our lives. There's a direct connection. This is because the gospel, by definition, is what? Good news. And listen, if the gospel has not been good news to you recently, maybe it's because you haven't allowed God to reveal any bad news about your life recently. So it's important that you and I ask God, search me, test me, point out any offensive way in me. And come on, in light of all that God has done to rescue and redeem us from sin, why, why wouldn't we pray like this? Why wouldn't we pray like this? Lord, search me, test me, point out any offensive way in me. And in light of the fact that, that while we were even yet sinners, God still sent his son. He demonstrated his love towards us in that while we were still sinners, he sent his son Jesus to die for us. Why wouldn't we, in light of all this, why wouldn't we pray, Lord, search me, test me, point out any offensive way in me? In the next few moments, we're going to have some time of worship. And what I'd hope and pray and desire for all of us to do together, though not together physically, but in spirit and in heart as a church, what I'd hope we would do together is to pray this prayer, to find ourselves opening our heart to God searching us and knowing us, praying in this way, Lord, Search me, test me, point out any offensive way in me. Would you help me begin to measure my heart towards, towards those within the everyday rhythms of my life? Not, not in the light of, of, of my culture or, or what my culture would, or my past experience would have me perceive it as. But Lord, would you begin to help me measure my heart towards others in light of your gospel, in light of your sacrifice. Heavenly Father, in light of the overwhelming, never-ending, 
reckless love that you showed towards me when you sent your son Jesus to die on the cross for me.